Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta, and today we are welcoming back Isaac Saul from Tangle. Isaac, how was your Thanksgiving? It was good, man. Uh, I have an awesome family Thanksgiving tradition with my my neighbors across the street. 20 years strong, we've been doing it together. So uh, it's always fun to get back home and see everybody. It, it was a nice little little break from the chaos from the news, man. Yes, I can imagine. Well, welcome back to the chaos. We've got a few touchy subjects today. We're going to talk about the Israel-Palestine ceasefire and just updates on that conflict. We're going to talk about uh, whether companies should be taking stances on uh, contentious issues. We're going to talk about how schools should handle current events like the conflict and other issues for which adults can't agree on. And then we're going to talk about this migrant crisis that has led to a wave of budget cuts in cities like New York City and elsewhere. But with that, Isaac, let's start with this um, ceasefire and just the current state of the conflict. We are recording this at 2.08 p.m. on Tuesday, Eastern Time. As of now, from your understanding, where do things stand between Israel and Hamas? Yeah, so I mean, the I guess the general landscape is that this is a, so far has been a successful ceasefire, uh, which is, you know, something that's not a given. I think a lot of times in the history of this conflict, we've seen ceasefires like this last you know, maybe an hour or two, and then something happens that that breaks them. And I think the reason that we're seeing this hold is because of the hostage and prisoner exchanges that are going on, which has drastically changed the dynamic of the conflict. I think when you and I spoke about this a few weeks ago, you know, we talked about how this would sort of be be unlike anything anybody had really ever seen. And one of the dynamics that we talked about was the role the hostages would play in the conflict because, you know, Israel is bombarding Gaza and and launching a ground invasion in Gaza while also trying to preserve the life of a couple hundred hostages that are in Gaza that they want to bring home. So right now, things are kind of at a standstill. There's a lot of humanitarian aid coming in, buses and buses and money and some fuel and water being turned back on and all, all things that I think are, you know, good if you're anybody who cares about the Palestinians that are trapped trapped in Gaza right now and you know the innocent civilians who are are kind of getting the brunt of this war long term i've no idea where things stand i mean the 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 sort of weird trade off that we're in right now is that israel has said they will pause their attacks and and hold the ceasefire every day an, an additional day for every 10 hostages that are released so far, they've kept their word on that. I imagine if you're Hamas or you know anybody in Gaza, the obvious way to navigate that is to release 10 hostages a day for as long as you can and, and hold the ceasefire as long as possible. So it seems like Qatar, especially, and also the Egypt and the United States have successfully brought the, the fighting to a stop here while we see hostages get released and prisoners from you know, Palestinian prisoners who are being held in Israel being released as well. So beyond the next couple of days of this ceasefire, which I expect to hold because, you know, both sides want to see people come home. I think it's it's really unclear where things are going to go. I think on the one hand, I would expect Israel is looking for a way out. I don't know that they want to step into reoccupying all of Gaza 
And I'd be shocked if, you know, that feels like a great option to them right now. But on the other hand, every indication we've gotten from Israeli officials and the Israeli military is that they're preparing to push south from, you know, northern Gaza around Gaza City, where they've been into southern Gaza, where, you know, hundreds of thousands of civilians have fled. And that is a really scary, ugly prospect from from my vantage point. I don't know what happens if, you know, the Israeli military goes into the region that they've just pushed all of these civilians into and where those Palestinian civilians are expected to go if the fighting comes to them in the south. So that that's the signal that's been sent. Um, but, you know, historically, this conflict has been very unpredictable. The stops and starts are pretty unpredictable. So it's hard to sort of know what's coming beyond the next couple of days of the the pause in fighting. Yeah, one of the things that we talked about last time we spoke was we were wondering what the end game for Israel was like, what's their desired future here? Have you been able to discern anything since then? Like, are you able to just say with any certainty, all right, like this is their vision for the future, like after this conflict is done? Interestingly, there's kind of two answers to that question. I think one is the the kind of Palestinian perspective and the the view that exists outside of Israel, which I think is maybe a more cynical or, or darker outlook, which is effectively that Israel's goal here is to just push Gazans out of as much territory in Gaza as they can um, and and sort of reoccupy or begin to settle the regions that those civilians flee. And you know, for, for a lot of Palestinian writers and analysts that that I've spoken to, and just normal Palestinian, I mean, I have some Palestinian readers who I interact with, their view of what's happening right now is effectively that Israel has just displaced hundreds of thousands of people from northern Gaza into southern Gaza, and now they're sending really clear signals they plan to go south. And what happens when that happens? Either, you know, these civilians stay there and they're killed in the fighting, or the situation gets so bad that they get pushed into Egypt, or, you know, maybe southern southern parts of Israel, and then become refugees. But either way, the w- whatever's left behind the Israeli military is going to be territory that they're going to occupy, and that they'll then have control of. So I think that's kind of the Palestinian perspective, which I think is tied to reality, tied to the situation on the ground and what the Israeli military is saying it's going to do. I think a more hopeful perspective is that Israel really felt the need to demonstrate, you know, strength here in the wake of this attack from Hamas, and that this brokered peace that we've seen is something that could lead to a longer-term pause in the fighting, because I don't see a world in which Israel pushes this ground invasion south without incurring a ton of military loss. I think a lot of their soldiers will die. And then I also think their their already degraded political standing with the international community will will worsen significantly, which is bad for their long-term security and trade relationships and everything else. So again, I, it's, it's really hard to say. I certainly don't have a, a clear idea of what Israel thinks is a great outcome here, aside from the fact that they just keep reiterating they're not going to stop until they destroy Hamas. But it seems like, you know, I, I think you might have even said this on one of your podcasts, that there's kind of the, uh, the never-ending 
uh, list of Hamas leaders who who can be killed. Yes. Yeah. Sort of, uh, it's yeah. everlasting. Yeah. You know, I think, uh, you know, when you talk about what your, your Palestinian listeners are saying, I think that there are like three ways that could go in terms of how Israel deals with this territory that it takes here. One is that they eliminate Hamas and then they retreat and hand over territory either to the Palestinian Authority or to some kind of international body, right? That, I think, is the best case scenario for everybody involved, in my opinion. Two is that they continue to make incursions and then they they pull back and some version of the same kind of process happens, except they hold on to some amount of barrier territory for merely security reasons, right? So they they extend out like whatever the security perimeter is and maybe they they hollow out tunnels using you know TNT and and, and whatever to to destroy tunnels create a larger security barrier etc that would obviously be interpreted still as a land grab and i think would would lead to a ton of backlash the third which i think is what your listeners um the listeners you cite are probably thinking about is they don't just extend territory for security reasons. They actually eventually wind up settling it. And I think that would be an incredibly incendiary act. And I wonder if if Israel doesn't immediately retreat, I wonder if even they know what they would do with the territory. Because I think like sometimes in the history of this conflict, that, like the West Bank's a good example. It's unclear when these things happen, what even Israel's goal is for the territory, and maybe even one one government, especially given that this is a divided coalition government, uh, might have like temporary goals, and then over time it turns into something else, which I think is what the Palestinian paranoia is all about, you know? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's interesting, I guess, about the best case scenario you're laying out, and I'd be curious, maybe you've seen this, and I haven't, but... I haven't seen any enthusiasm from the Arab world leaders, None. you know, be, be it yeah. Egypt, Qatar, whatever, about trying to install a new leadership in Gaza. I mean, they seem like there is absolutely no desire to have a part in that process at all. So I guess like, while I agree that that's probably the best case scenario, I just don't see how it happens First of all, it's going to be a, whatever leadership is installed with the blessing of Israel and the United States is probably going to be rejected by a huge chunk of the Gazan population. And even if these Arab leaders in Egypt or Qatar or Jordan could help, you know, bring about some kind of new leadership there, I'm not so sure that even helps the buy-in from the Gazan population despite the fact that many people are probably dissatisfied with Hamas right now, given what they've, they've brought to the territory. So I don't know, do you, do you feel like you have any more optimistic outlook on that? I think UNRWA is probably the best candidate for this, even though Israel, I think, has no love for the United Nations. But, you know, and for the listeners, this is the UN agency that's been responsible for Palestinian refugees for decades now and has run schools uh, in Gaza and elsewhere. You know, it's schools that have come under criticism. Actually, we had a, a voicemail from a listener asking about the United Nations kind of complicity and some of the propaganda that kind of pushes through Palestinian schools, which is something we're going to look into uh, and I want to give an educated answer to. But yeah, I would say UNRWA is probably the best, uh, you know, best case scenario. I think I heard, you know, I was listening to the BBC this morning and there was a former Palestinian 
uh, official who said, you know, who said that essentially Israel will have to deal with a Hamas government. I just cannot see that happening. Like, I just cannot see Israel ever sitting across from Hamas after this. And Israel has said they won't. And I, and I think they're at the word on that. I also think that the conflict is, is creating a weird dynamic because before the conflict, Hamas was losing standing in Gaza. There was a poll conducted, I think Ezra Klein's podcast uh, had the pollster on, the, and I think it, the polling wrapped up the day before October 7th. And it showed that Hamas was in weaker standing. There was actually no sort of entity that really had a, had a majority standing within Gaza, but Hamas was as weak as it's been. But uh, by all indications, they're stronger in West Bank than they've been in a long time, in part because they have, like the West Bank residents haven't had to deal with Hamas governance. But I think what's happening now with these prisoner swaps is a lot of these prisoners being let out are West Bank residents. And the BBC was covering today as a, like as these people, these Palestinian prisoners are being released into the West Bank. There were all these celebrations. And the BBC report seemed to imply that this is actually strengthening Hamas's popularity in the West Bank. I, I, I would have to see more data to really validate that, but it seems credible. And if that's the case, then it would look like the Palestinian Authority then would be coming under more and more pressure in the West Bank. And, and that's the kind of perverse outcome of all of this. It's like, who's left standing to govern the Palestinians? Yeah, I mean, when I, I, you know, I wrote a piece a few weeks ago that the premise of it was basically that Israel had zero good options after Hamas's attack. And, you know, the, the there are broadly different things that a lot of people are calling for Israel to do. But the one that was mostly centered around, you know, getting the hostages home and putting in a ceasefire the the major drawback of that that I wrote about was that would just be a win for Hamas, you know, in in a vacuum, the pause in fighting, the fact that Israel was coming to the table to negotiate with them, and the fact that they sort of executed this attack and then days later were able to bring a stop to the fighting because, you know, they were cunning enough to bring hostages back with them into Gaza. It it made everything look like a more successful military operation. And that was before the hostage exchange came with the freeing of hundreds of Palestinian prisoners. So I, again, like you, have not seen you know comprehensive data, and I don't think we'll have that for a little while. Polling in the West Bank and Gaza is notoriously difficult to do in a really accurate way, and it doesn't happen as often as I wish it did. But it would not surprise me at all if we saw a big jump in Hamas's popularity in the West Bank. And even as crazy as it sounds, even in Gaza, I mean, you know, I think it, the rational way to view what's happened is Hamas, you know, performed this attack, provoked Israel, and now has wrought, you know, a tremendous amount of damage and death and destruction in Gaza. And that, that's certainly how I view it. Um, and I blame Hamas for some of what's happened since their attack. But at the same time, I also could see the attacks pushing people in Gaza into, you know, the arms of a group that's saying we're going to rise up with violence. And that is, I think, also a natural, logical position to have if you're a Gazan. So it's really scary to think about them coming out of this with more, you know, with, with a higher standing among Gazans and those in the West Bank. But it, it certainly would not surprise me based on what we've seen so far. Yeah, I, I mean, one option Israel has potentially, and and I don't know enough about the security perimeter around the Gaza Strip and how Israel could 
prevent another October 7th could happen from happening if Hamas were to take power back in the, in the Gaza Strip. But if Israel were just more sort of on the case, you know, you could imagine just like a world where they took Hamas more seriously, plus whatever damage they could do to Hamas in this fight could potentially do a lot. But, you know, one option could be that they are able to in some way sure up the sort of fence line, destroy tunnels. Maybe it involves that sort of second option with some kind of security barrier. And then they just, they enforce this blockade in a more ruthless way than they have in a while. Like when I was looking at the history of Hamas, I, one thing that, that was clear in the history of Hamas was that they really struggled under the more severe versions of the Israeli and, e- and Egyptian, I don't want to let the Egyptians off the hook, they, like, the, the, the joint Egyptian and Israeli blockades. And my sense is Israel could put a lot of pressure on Hamas with some strategic targeted work during this phase, you know, pushing out the right kind of Hamas leaders, destroying certain military infrastructure, shoring up whatever that security barrier is, whether it's with land or or not. Like my hope would be that it wouldn't be with any land because with land becomes a lot of the history and the paranoia, which I think would create lasting damage for everybody. And then I think they could just economically strangle Hamas. And and it seemed like on like before this October 7th attack, Hamas was on the brink of trying to hand power back to the Palestinian Authority because they didn't want any piece of governing a Gaza Strip under a blockade. Again, it's like one of those one of those weird, sick realities of what's happened, which is from a lot of people's perspectives, Israel has basically played the exact hand that you would think Hamas would want them to. Yes. You know, aside from even if you're assuming that Hamas does not want to see a bunch of people in Gaza killed, which I'm not totally convinced of at all. I think dragging Israel into this conflict, worsening their standing on the global stage, rallying people across the Arab world, you know, to the pro-Palestine cause, and also pulling it off in a way that was, you know, from their perspective, quote unquote, successful because they killed a bunch of people and they brought in a bunch of hostages. And now on top of that, they see their popularity rise in the Palestinian territories. I mean... It's kind of hard to script a better outcome for them based on where we were, you know, October 8th. I I don't think anything has gone in a way that has really benefit Israel at all. And, you know, maybe maybe that calculation changes if enough Hamas leaders actually die or their power is really, you know, restrained by whatever this ground invasion ends up being. But right now, I would say this has gone pretty much as well as they could have possibly imagined before the attack happened. Yeah. Well, uh, before we move off of sort of the contemporary questions, I'm curious, uh, you know, we we hadn't talked about this um, Shifa hospital incident. And I, I just think it was such an interesting example of when you say it's a no win situation for Israel. You had this situation where now we have two hospital incidents, right? You had the first hospital incident, which was, you know, Israel was blamed for a target, you know, a hit on a hospital that actually came from within the territories, right? But Israel still somehow lost that PR battle. I don't know how. Um, 
and then you have now a situation where Israel claimed that there was a Hamas military command post under a hospital. I'm I'm curious as to what you make of both what actually Israel discovered and how that was perceived, because I honestly don't know how, like, I don't know how to score it if I'm scoring it, like both morally and in terms of who is, whose aims were, were furthered by that whole saga. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's really bizarre is kind of the only word I can use to describe it. There was this group of journalists who were brought into Gaza to look at what was sold to them as being hard evidence of, you know, these underground tunnels existing, you know, around and beneath this hospital, which from Israel's perspective was justification for pushing into the hospital, evacuating a bunch of premature babies and children and women and civilians who are there being treated. And basically, you know, having a a battle on the grounds of this hospital, which, you know, I think most people would view with a lot of skepticism and wariness. And as far as I can tell, pretty much every journalist who I think did not go into that with some really strong ideological tilt came out of it basically saying, we saw entrances to a tunnel it looked like a pretty significant piece of infrastructure built by Hamas, but we have no idea whether it actually connects or runs underneath the hospital or is in close enough proximity to the hospital to justify the kind of incursions into the hospital. And it was really weird because... I listened to like five or six journalists who went on this trip or or read their takes about it, read their reports from the trip. And they all sort of had this really, like a very nuanced kind of tactful presentation of what happened, what their experience was, which was basically like, we went into Gaza. It is as bad or worse than everything you've seen it's totally desolate. There's nobody there. There's just destruction everywhere. And then we saw this thing that is proof for sure that these tunnels exist and that they're significant and they're elaborate, but we didn't really have a chance to go down. We couldn't go inside. We can't confirm you know, Israel's presentation that this is something that's actually impacting you know, or th- th- that's actually running so close and underneath these hospitals that it's justification for them to attack or bomb them. And so like you, I kind of left feeling like totally less sure than I did even before. And I think from my perspective, I think that's a probably a PR loss for Israel. I think what they really wanted was like a totally unequivocated report from some major media outlets that these tunnels existed as they described them, which would bolster their justification for for this invasion. But instead, whatever they showed this group of journalists just didn't seem like it was enough to totally convince them to put that into print, which I thought was really interesting. And, you know, without seeing it, I I don't know what to make of it. What do you make of, because there was that sort of tour. And then there was this release of the CCT footage that seemed to show that there were two hostages 
in the hospital facility, one of which came in with minor in, uh, injuries, according to BBC reporting. You know, this this Corporal Marciano was 19, who, who, according to at least this BBC reporting, came in with minor injuries and was murdered in the hospital. And it, that would seem to be stronger than the tour itself of the tunnels. But again, I... There's it, there was a remarkably little definitive reporting on this. Uh, I don't know if you had an opinion on the CCT footage. Yeah, well, the interesting thing to that was, you know, I saw that footage and my first reaction was basically that Hamas viewed the hospital as a place that they could go hide and sort of, you know, you're imagining this battle going on. You're imagining them coming back from crossing over into the Israel border, they have these hostages, they're fleeing, you would think they would go to what they imagined to be like their home base to just like regroup, go over what just happened, you know, bring the hostages. And the fact that they went to the hospital, to me, my first instinct seeing that was, oh, wow, like this, this is actually pretty decent evidence that, you know, if this is their first stop on the way back from this mass slaughter, then maybe there is some room or there's some entrance or there's something that's happening there that is they recognize as being beneficial for them to be there. And then there was like another response that I saw from a lot of people, which was basically that they brought these people in and they were being cared for by the members of the hospital or that, you know, Hamas was taking them there for treatment because they didn't want them to die or be seriously injured because they wanted to use them as, you know, kind of pieces. What we're seeing now, they wanted to trade them for prisoners or ceasefire or whatever, which I think is like a, is plausible in some sense, I guess. And a lot of people were trying to read the body language of the nurses and the stuff that, you know, there were hospital workers in the CCTV footage and some of them looked shocked and scared. And some of them looked like they knew exactly what to do when they got there. And that is like, I want to stay out of that. Like, I, I don't, I'm not going to read body language and determine whether like a nurse has seen this member of Hamas before in the past. But I think I definitely lean towards believing that it is odd in my, from my view that, you know, they're not taking these guys to some kind of military outpost. They're not taking them to some safe house, some place to just like put them away and store them and then go back into the battlefield. They're bringing them to this hospital, given what they did to all these people in Israel. I find it hard to believe that their first thought is the well-being of the prisoners, right. the hostages yeah. <laughs> they've just taken. Like that's that's a hard, hard buy for me. So I've viewed that, my first instinct when I viewed that was that it was a pretty strong point in the narrative that, you know, these hospitals were functioning as some kind of outpost for them. So um, you know, it's just a couple people and it's just a couple instances, but that paired with the other reporting we have definitely suggests that there might be something to Israel's narrative about the hospitals. Let's shift gears to talk about the domestic front. Uh, Jonathan Chait in New York Magazine had an article this week titled, Just Stop Making Official Statements About the News. And he goes through universities, corporations, et cetera, and basically charts the genesis of this sort of contemporary expectation that institutions and in some cases public figures should 
comment on everything that happens, whether they have any control over said thing or not. And he traces it kind of to the Floyd era when, you know, there was this sort of language around allyship and and being an ally means commenting uh, and showing solidarity with whatever side or position um, is demanding it. And essentially he says this expectation, like he says two things. One is the universities and other institutions put themselves in a bind here because they had been issuing statements on all sorts of things. And so when this thing came around, it looked like a lot of these universities and institutions didn't want to make any statements. And so they kind of released these anodyne statements, which I think in and of itself is interesting why this issue, you know, if you're comfortable making statements on so many others, why October 7th didn't justify a statement. You know, that was kind of a point Yasha Monk made when I interviewed him recently, where he's like, look, I don't like these this expectation, but it is weird if you don't, then if you abandon it just for this issue. So Jake kind of makes a similar point, but then he says, look, this expectation is bad and we should just move away from it. Like we shouldn't expect institutions to comment on everything. Curious to where you come on, come down on this. I love this piece. I think it's one of like the most cogent, clear-headed, straightforward pieces I've seen from Jonathan in a while and generally about the discourse. I basically agree with him almost to a letter. I mean, I, I, I wish I'd written it myself. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, first of all, I don't need Harvard Law School to tell me what to think about the <laughs> Israel-Palestine conflict. Like, right. I just don't, you know? There's the same way I don't need Nike to tell me what to think or, you know, M&Ms to tell me where I should land on police violence. It, I think it's a really bizarre and toxic development in like the social and cultural wars that we've had. I think that universities, especially where administrators and schools and professors and all, all these, the, the institutions as a whole are trying to foster free speech. They're trying to foster debate. They're trying to foster open-mindedness. The idea that they would come out and take a particular stance on an issue like this is totally bizarre to me. It undercuts everything that they're supposed to stand for. It's kind of how I feel, honestly, about news organizations, the, the uh, editorial boards, you know, endorsing candidates for office. In Tangle, we make like zero political endorsements because I think it totally undermines our credibility to say, you know, this person is the right person to be president when people are reading us to try and understand you know, views on the news and and views on politics and kind of, you know, to get a, a myriad of perspectives about these people. So I totally agree with his position. I think it would turn the temperature down on campuses. It would turn the temperature down at places like, you know, Google and Facebook and all these huge companies that are seeing uprisings, you know, amongst their staff because, they used the wrong word in their statement or they didn't say the thing that they wanted to say. And I think it would refocus the activists and the protests onto the people that actually matter. You know, I mean, again, Harvard Law School is going to have zero impact on the outcome of this conflict. Their statement one way or another doesn't matter. And now all the protesters who are trying to get a certain administrator or a group at their school to use the word genocide or to condemn Hamas or whatever it is, they're focusing their energy on something that even if they got it, 
the outcome of that is going to be negligible to zero on the real world impact from my perspective when the power centers are in totally different places. You know, they're in the US government, they're in Israel, they're in Qatar, they're in Egypt, they're in the, the Palestinian territories, they're among the peace groups who sometimes get involved in the negotiating process, you know, moments like this when the conflict's at a really bad place. And so, uh, yeah, I, I love the piece. I thought it was excellent. I thought it was really well said. And I don't understand. It's such a, it's shooting yourself in the foot. Like I, I, I think one of the best things he said was just, you know, he doesn't understand why they do this. There's no winning strategy to them releasing these statements. I don't know. How did you feel about it? Yeah, I know. I agree. And I, I interviewed Todd Rose from Populous about data that he has, and he uses the sort of collective illusions framework and revealed preferences that get beyond even just what polling suggests to get to what what people really believe using sort of fancy statistical models. And he found that both the American public and corporate leaders are both aligned on not wanting corporate leaders to make these types of statements. But the polling, when you pull people directly, they they say they're a little bit more mixed on it. And and part of what he's saying is he, he thinks that there's like a lot of pressure to say you want this, but most people don't want it. And and I think about like the South Brooklyn here in New York, in Brooklyn, there was a city council race recently, where in the closing days, the Israeli-Palestinian issues was the biggest issue in a city council race. And as we'll get to, uh, hopefully if we have time, like we're in the middle of, middle of a mi- migrant crisis in New York City. Like, Honestly, like you and I care a lot about this issue, but I don't want my, I don't, it's not even the hundredth issue I, I think my city council member should be concerned about. He has no power over the Israel-Palestinian conflict. And so, like, obviously, yeah, issues of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia or whatever, like, these are, these are issues that can, that have local public policy issues and, and are important, but the conflict itself, it's like, you're not running for the United Nations Security Council, you're running for the New York City Council. I think it's a good uh, segue into schools. So, you know, at the same time, there was a, you know, there are these sort of little community boards that that serve as like informal school boards in New York City. And the head of the board that includes parts of Brooklyn, including Williamsburg, was encouraging students to miss school to attend a protest, uh, pro-Palestinian protest. And it came out that that board hadn't uh, posted minutes for its meetings since last spring. And... Uh, I, you know, I got in a, in a debate about this recently with with an educator where I was like, look, like, do your job. It's weird that you're not holding meetings and then you're encouraging kids to miss school, to show up to a protest on your quote unquote side of said issue. And so that that in and of itself, I think, is a reflection of this lack of sort of local focus. But I do think like it it reveals, though, like this big question about how schools should be handling contentious issues like this. And I'm left wondering whether any teacher would ever want to touch these discussions, like even from a totally well-intentioned place, even if the teacher themselves was was truly objective, or even if they had a position, which most people do, they wanted to go about it honestly and didn't want to push any particular narrative. I just, I can't imagine that that will go over well with parents. Like like the chances of a parent coming through your school building and, and saying, Hey, like you had our kids read this thing or, you know, you are trying to indoctrinate our kids and then asking for your head. It seems like near certainty. Yeah. I mean, I, I think they should, I think they should be talking about it, but I don't understand why they would ever want to. And this is, you know, the, 
the classic divide between free speech culture and and free speech law. And, you know, a lot of people, I think, kind of conflate the two. Like, you know, somebody gets just destroyed on Twitter for tweeting something that's somewhat controversial and then loses their job. And they say, my free speech rights were violated. And then a bunch of people are, respond by saying, no, they weren't. You're, you know, the government can only violate your free speech, not, you know, somebody who punishes you or holds you accountable for something you said. And that's true in a way. But the reality is free speech culture kind of precedes changes in, in free speech law. And I think what we're experiencing right now and have been for a few years is a really big degradation of free speech culture in America. And just like the administrators at these institutions we're talking about, th they end up degrading free speech culture by stepping into conflicts and issues that they just shouldn't and they have no business doing. And then everybody sees them get destroyed for whatever statement they release from both sides. And that creates a culture where people are scared to speak their minds, scared to speak out openly you know, about how they feel on certain issues. And that's bad for the free speech culture. And similarly, you know, I think teachers are looking around this landscape and thinking, look at all these laws that are being implemented across the country to restrict the kinds of things we can teach in class, whether it's race or gender or whatever else. And then look at the way, you know, corporations and major institutions like colleges are getting hammered for having the wrong language in a statement. And I'm just like, some lowly teacher making $50,000 a year with no legal protection and no institutional backing. I'm not going to talk about Israel and Palestine in class, which sucks because from my perspective, those are the people who actually should be facilitating those conversations. They're teachers. They're trained to engage classrooms in really difficult conversations. They're trained to teach. You know, Obviously, one would hope that they don't bring in their they're really strong ideological positions. And of course, some of them do. I'm not going to sit here and pretend like they don't. But if I were, you know, if I heard that my kids were learning about this conflict in their middle school social studies class, I would think, yeah, of course, that's where they should be learning about it. They, they shouldn't be getting it. I'd rather that than them getting it from, you know, TikTok or a Nike statement about the conflict. Um, I think the risk of it sort of going south is much lower there. But yeah, if I were a teacher, there's no way I'd want to talk about this stuff openly, given everything I'm seeing in the news and the way I'm seeing other people's responses to it get handled. You know, it's just, it doesn't feel like it's safe to be honest about your position or even facilitate conversations where people get to share controversial views openly right now. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because there is significant student interest in this, which is something you could channel to, you know, help achieve other pedagogical aims, whether it's, you know, helping students debate better, use primary resources, distinguish good from bad resources, improve their writing, you know, just listening to different perspectives, changing your perspective based on new evidence, following current events, right? These are all things that are really important, but you, it's just so risky. And, and you talked about the, the legislation making its way through this country. Beth Hawkins in the 74 wrote about a PEN America this week, uh, wrote about a PEN America report. Penn is kind of a watchdog group for uh, educational freedom and journalistic freedom. And they track now, they say that there are 110 bills seeking to restrict discussions of race, U.S. history, and LGBTQ people in schools and colleges that have been introduced in state legislatures, and 10 have become law. And this, is, this adds to 20 such bills that were passed in 2021 and 2022. So the numbers I just cited were 2023. 
So it looks like 10 have already become law. It looks like you could see something close to at least a 50%, if not uh, doubling of the amount of pieces of law that restrict what teachers can and cannot teach. And, you know, a lot of these used to include, according to this reporting, both higher education and K-12, and they would co-mingle them. Florida was kind of in the vanguard of this. And what Beth is charting in this article is that the the proponents of these pieces of legislation, the sort of Chris Rufo types, are learning that these are very unpopular. Like they, you know, a lot of these groups, like for instance, Moms for Liberty type groups have, you know, suffered losses in this past year's election. So part of what they're doing is they're they're becoming a little bit more vague in what they're pushing. And they're also focusing more on K-12, where the polling is a little more mixed about what parents want or don't want taught. And also the the legal framework for restrictions of speech are much stronger at the K-12 level than at colleges, which have much stronger First Amendment protections. And it just seems like this is not about Israel-Palestine alone. Like Israel-Palestine issues are a reflection of what seems to be a paralysis within schools by design. Yeah, I mean, I wrote about this early on in the Republican push to start banning certain books in K-12 through schools which was, you know, my, my position then was essentially you can go to a public school library and find a book that most Americans will find objectionable for a third grader or something like that. It's, it's not hard to do that. And I don't think anybody should waste their breath denying that it's hard to do that. But the moment that you rest the power to decide what can show up in these libraries away from teachers and librarians and professionals who are trained, you know, to build out those kinds of courses or libraries or whatever, and you give that power to certain parents or certain politicians in a way that allows them to, you know, push their personal preferences onto the population as a whole, we get into like really, really, really dangerous territory because the sensitivities of one parent who can now object to a certain book in a classroom or a certain kind of lesson plan in a classroom should not dictate what everybody else's kids learn. There should be a separate process among educators in order to figure that out. And you know, again, it's just like I was saying a moment ago about being a teacher. If I if I were a teacher right now, I would not want to talk about gender issues or trans issues or, you know, issues around race, because in so many places in the country, there are now explicit laws where there's functionality for them to be punished for, for touching on those topics or doing it in a way that opens them up to some kind of firing reprimand and then you know, court challenge if they try and fight it. And the law is not going to be on their side in an increasing number of states, which I think is really scary. And again, the degradation of the free speech culture preceded those laws. We we saw that happening in the lead up to these kinds of bans and restrictions coming into play. And now we're seeing actual laws that I think infringe on the free speech of educators and, you know, I, I read that report. I hadn't seen that before uh, your team sent it over to me before this podcast, but it's jarring. I mean, it's, you know, it's talking about over a million teachers 
who are now under what they're calling educational gag orders, which I, I don't think is a rhetorical flourish. I think it's an accurate way to describe it. Yeah, I, I think like at, at a time when there is a true crisis in the education pr- professions in this country where we're having a harder and harder time attracting people to teaching, we've got to get out of the way. Like, I, you know, I, we've been having a conversation internally here about I come from the sort of education reform world and we, we're very prescriptive in many ways about how we wanted schools to look and what teachers to do. And I think a lot of us learned over time that, you know, as well-intentioned as I think a lot of my colleagues have been, we missed something big, which is that the autonomy of teachers is a really important selling point of the profession. And you have to balance that against the desire to prescribe practices that are evidence-based and that you know, work and creating like an organized framework for moving forward in our education system. And then you have to balance those two, right? But that at, at this moment, I would say that a lot of people have moved more towards autonomy in part because teachers are saying that they're being micromanaged in ways that they haven't before. And I think this this sort of move to put these gag orders in teachers comes at a really bad time when there is a huge crisis in the teaching profession and recruiting teachers to the profession. And certainly in, in certain states, it's it's beyond a crisis. Like we, we've covered in Mississippi, for example, that there's that's, the shortages are getting so bad that they're, they're now having to beam in teachers uh, on computers because they can't find enough teachers to teach kids in certain areas. So I think that the instinct here is exactly the opposite of what it should be. And the election results, I think, show this. Like, Parents pick up on what's happening with their teachers, and I think what's what's happened over the past few years is is a backlash to the backlash. Where a lot of these groups are showing up to school boards, et cetera, and and honestly, like some of them were picking up on certain legitimate weird pedagogy. And then I think what happened was they they won their initial battles against a lot of the stupid stuff, and then they just kept going. And then they started going after, you know, Beloved by Toni Morrison and stuff that, you know, any reasonable person would have no problem existing on the shelf of schools. And and there's all this data around where Moms for Liberty takes over school board, that the turnover rate of superintendents goes through the roof. And parents look at that and they're like, we don't want chaos within our school system. We don't want people shouting at our school board meetings. You know, we don't want to be pulling good literature off the shelves. We don't want to be really pulling anything because it's just a, a huge distraction. Like, like w- what one book exists on our library shelf is immaterial in many ways. We'd be lucky if the kids were that engaged in what's on the library shelves that one book would make that much of a difference. We've got a bigger crisis going on. And so I do think the backlash to the backlash is going to be really important. And if there was an education issue that I think would show up in the elections in 2024, I think that this question around the strangling of the profession could be the one that endures. Yeah, and I, and I, I would add to that too that there's a really simple message that, you know, any centrist or Democrat could employ. I mean, anybody could employ. I think a lot of this stuff is coming from conservatives and Republicans across the country right now. And as somebody whose politics are are all over the place on a lot of different issues, it's incredibly disappointing to see the way the conservative movement has just abandoned these kind of fundamental American quote unquote things that they've championed for so long, which is like not being scared of certain ideas, you know, embracing free speech, the the marketplace of ideas, all this stuff, small government. I mean, this is everything about this movement runs counter to that. And I think 
if you're a politician and you want to run against it, that messaging is really simple, which is like, we shouldn't be hiding the world from our kids and the government shouldn't be intruding on every classroom across the country because eventually, inevitably, what's going to happen is progressives and liberals are going to use these same tools to get what they want in the classroom. And then conservatives are going to really hate the world that they're living in. And, and I think that's that's just like the reality of where we are. And the more these kinds of like hostile takeovers of school boards happen, the more politicians, people like Ron DeSantis, whatever, try and put their thumb on the scales of what kids are learning, the, the worse they're going to do electorally. I, I totally believe that. Well, okay, let's shift gears now. You know, I said that I think the, you know, this sort of strangling of the profession is going to show up in 2024. One thing I can say for sure is that in October 2024, you know, on the debate stages and in rally after rally, one issue I can guarantee is going to have staying power is immigration. And right now, you know, we've covered this so much here at Lost Debate Podcast and at the branch around the various crises at the border and all the numbers of arrivals on the border. And we'll put in the show notes, like, uh, you know, through the spring and the summer, we were covering the various dips and, and, and increases in immigration and the changes to Title 42 and all of that. But one thing that we've been charting is from that first set of flights that Ron DeSantis charted from Florida, which at the time was covered and probably was a cynical political move was then followed by Texas busing migrants, Colorado under Jared Polis busing migrants. Uh, and, and then it seemed like it was more than just a political stunt. It seemed like a true policy solution for certain states. And we said at the time, and I continue to believe that it is sensible to distribute migrants evenly throughout the country. I also said at the time that I wasn't sure that was what was going on here. Like, I wasn't sure that they were like, let's distribute evenly. I think it was a little bit of let's get, let's alleviate our burden, especially in the case of Texas, and let's put liberal cities in a political bind. And I would say mission accomplished. Like, <laughs> like uh, there, I think that to give credit to some of these folks, they truly made their point. Like, New York is suffering. Like, November 16th, Eric Adams announced a, a, a freeze to police hiring that would put uh, officers in New York City at the lowest level since 1984 when I was one year old, closing libraries, cutting education funding. It looks like the, the migrant crisis is going to cost uh, estimated $11 billion over two years. Uh, and this comes as the next year's budget already has a $7 billion gap. And so if you hear Eric Adams on this issue, he is on fire about it. and what it means to be a, a sanctuary city, a liberal city, I think is really up for debate at this point. And it's not just New York, obviously Chicago and other cities are dealing with this too. And, and Chicago is not a small question here. It's a, obviously a huge city, but it's also where the Democratic Convention is going to take place. So I think both the political stuntiness of this has paid off. And I think the, the substantive point being made, which is that liberal cities were dictating um, a permissive immigration policy that they weren't willing to bear the costs of is also true. And I can't imagine this going well either for the country or for the Democratic Party. 
Yeah. So uh, first of all, I just think like two things to get out of the way at the top. My biggest objection to the whole busing movement always from the beginning was that there were just reports that some of the people, were the migrants were being yeah. tricked. Yeah. They yeah. were being told that they were going to a job or being told that this was something that people on the other end wanted, that these cities were set up for them and they're being put on a bus and sent there and then arriving. And it was like, they were intentionally, the, these governors were intentionally creating a crisis without communicating to the cities. And the people who were suffering the most because of that were these migrants who were just you know, being told to get on this bus and go somewhere because there was going to be a job and housing and food for them there. And they were being fooled. And, you know, there's no excuse for that. The second thing I would say is regarding New York City specifically and and Eric Adams, I think one thing that sort of got buried in that story was, you know, he also said slowing tax revenues and the end of pandemic aid were part of the reason that they had to make these budget cuts, which not a lot of people are talking about. I mean, the idea that New York City has slowing tax revenue is pretty jarring given what an economic center it is. And the federal pandemic aid is, you know, another example of the government sort of getting used, the city government getting used to state and federal government kind of subsidizing their costs and not properly preparing for that to end, which is, you know, worrisome and worth criticizing in terms of New York City being ready for the other side of the pandemic. But there is absolutely zero, all that being said, there's zero doubt that this issue has been brought to the doorstep of blue cities, quote unquote. I mean, I have family, I actually own own property on the border uh, right near the Rio Grande in West Texas. And you go down the, the border of a state like Texas, and it's a huge issue because they have to deal with migrants coming in every day by the hundreds and the thousands. And it's not something that's really comprehensible until you're there and you see it up close in person. And it's really easy to ignore when you're 2,000 miles away. And I totally agree with the premise that if the federal government is going to determine how you know Texas, Arizona, Florida, and California manage the immigration issue and their borders then all 50 states should participate in taking on that burden, both financially and from the perspective of, you know, like you said, evenly distributing migrants across the country who need housing and food and all, all those necessities that come with just existing. So I, I imagine that this pressure at some point is going to become unbearable for some Democrats in Congress and for the president. I think you know, a best case scenario here is that that pressure gets high enough that we actually get some kind of substantial immigration reform because there's enough members of Congress who are worried about, you know, getting booted from office if they don't do something about it. In the meantime, though, I mean, I, you know, I lived in New York City for 10 years. You're still there. I'm back and forth a couple of times a month and you see it. I mean, I I went to Randall's Island and there's a giant tent on Randall's Island with a bunch, you know, hundreds, probably thousands of migrants living in it, you know, and a, a huge chunk of one of the biggest public parts in the city that's totally shut down to handle this issue. And along with the, the cuts and, you know, what's going to end up being an increase in the cost, there's just this visible experience that a lot of New Yorkers are having on the ground. 
And I don't see how, you know, this is sustainable at all long term. So something's got to break, which to your point, I think was what everybody wanted who was participating in this kind of busing stunt. Yeah. And let me kind of put a fine point on it, which is the, you know, I saw this in Staten Island over Thanksgiving. I was, you know, for my, my family gets together Thanksgiving, you know, most of the people at Sable are city workers, right? And all the city workers are being told, you're not getting a raise because of the migrants. You're not getting the healthcare you want because of migrants. We're not adding more people. You know, I had um, a family friend who's a school resource officer who was describing how they're just under-resourced and don't have enough school resource officers to stop the fights happening in the school. You're not getting any more of those because of the migrants. And in Staten Island, they, they wound up basically expelling migrants who tried to use a, they tried to use a Catholic school facility for migrants and there were protests day and night in front of this Catholic school. And then miraculously, the city found a code violation in the building. You know, it's almost like a lean on me uh, sequel or something, uh, which maybe it was a true codes violation, but it seemed coincidental to me. And this is a recipe for populism. You're telling people that the reason for their problems are these, these other people showing up on your doorstep. And and that's why I think everybody needs to wrap their arms around this because this is where really bad stuff happens, right? This is where really hateful, explosively bad things could happen, even in a blue city like New York. And I predict that the Democrats will give Republicans everything they ask for pretty much on immigration in this next round of negotiations. Schumer basically postured in the past few days about this. He was like, they're trying to like put a gun to my head on this. And then he basically quietly said, yeah, but we'll pass it. And I, that's my prediction. I just think they're going to have to do it. Because because like honestly, Democrats used to believe in, or like I still think many of them do. But I think like I think the 2020 primary I think did a lot of damage to Democratic image and and politics on this, where there was a lot of like open border language being used during that primary. That anomaly aside, the Democratic Party traditionally had had been quietly at the table for uh, a lot of shoring up of the border which is why I think that the, the build a wall stuff was such a distraction because it's like, whether it's people with guns or lasers and fences and, you know, deportations, like Democrats had been on at the table approving of a lot of those measures and whether it's a wall or a person with a gun, either way, there actually was a decent amount of bipartisan consensus about securing that border. I'm curious being, being that you're in New York right now, I was kind of expecting at the beginning of this to see a bunch of reports or maybe hear stories about that tension bubbling up pretty quick, which often manifests itself in like, you know, fights in the streets or certain kind of hate crimes or, you know, police reports of violence, you know, involving migrants or whatever. Um, I'm I'm curious if you feel like you've witnessed that tension in the city at all or have heard stories from people on the ground or you're starting to hear people express frustration about the situation. Like, do you feel like that's coming because it always does or because you've started to see the the signs of that? I mean, you definitely read about them. Uh, and and but when it depends on who you're talking to, right? You could read in the papers about violence and intimidation of, of migrants. But then you also, like when I'm in Staten Island, people w can quote from memory, whether accurate or not, I have no idea, crimes that the migrants are committing, right? So it's, this is why I think this is explosive. We're one incident away from 
like let, let me paint a picture for you let let's say a, a migrant is accused whether they did it or not of some heinous crime like some kind of you know rape and assault or murder or something of, of some very sympathetic victim which obviously all victims are sympathetic but it then it becomes like a in in the worst place for this to happen would be in Staten Island and it then explodes into violence on the streets where people are at the doorstep of one of these facilities, pulling people out and committing violence against that. I don't think we're that far away from that. In a weird way, the Israel-Palestine stuff happened at, at at a time that I think distracted people, I think a little bit from what was going on because November 16th is when Adams announced this stuff, right? It was in the middle of the the hottest of the hot debates around the Israel-Palestine conflict. And I think in a weird way, that kind of took a little bit of the energy out of the local issue. And I, I honestly think like, yeah, obviously taking energy out of violence and stuff is, is, is good. But I, I do think we need to step up as a city and wrap our arms around this like, and say, what is our response? How do we take care of people? Let's actually have a, an open di- discussion about how we spend money as a city and say, all right, like, let's not only find the money we have to for the things that we have to do. We don't want anybody going homeless no matter how they arrive here. Two, let's make sure we send our strongest possible representatives to new, to DC to negotiate something, perhaps one who's not under the threat of imminent federal indictment. We do have Hakeem Jeffries and Chuck Schumer, for example, which by the way is another reason why I think immigration is going to get passed, which is why this is like such an effective set of tools like I, I do think for all the stunting and, and all the deception and all of that, this was as an effective way to get stringent border protection as anything I've ever seen. But I do think like citizens of New York need to wake up and say, look, like for every minute you spend on Israel-Palestine, you need to be spending 10 minutes on the migrant crisis, the homeless crisis, like the, the, the fact that we're losing residents right? Like there's actually a version of we should be welcoming certain kind of immigrants, right? Like obviously you don't want immigrants who can't work for 60 days, right? We need to fix that policy or whatever, you know, like it doesn't help when immigrants can't come here and not work. And there's all sorts of legislation trying to solve that. But we, there's a world where we could welcome people coming here because we're losing population. If that makes any sense. No, totally. I mean, I, I think the legislative solutions exist that could make the influx of so many migrants a lot easier to handle. But I also think, yeah, fundamentally, they have to find a way to stop the influx because there's just, you know, it's it's totally unavoidable and there's nothing wrong with acknowledging the fact that every city in America, or at least all the big ones, are already struggling with unaffordable housing and lack of access to resources like healthcare and education and just throwing in a few hundred thousand extra people who for good reason need a lot more help than people who maybe grew up in these neighborhoods because they just got, you know, arrived here from a foreign country and maybe don't speak the language or don't have citizenship or don't have working rights. You know, that's going to cause a lot of problems and slowing that down at the top is really important. It's a good point. I mean, I still, I'm, I've, I hadn't thought of it until you just said it, but, um, you know, my brain just still thinks Nancy Pelosi runs Congress, but I forget (laughs) that Hakeem Jeffries is, you know, another New York politician who's kind of at the top right now and, um, is going to have a big role 
in shaping what happens out of the next kind of, you know, the next the next wave of immigration reform. And it's a good point that him and Chuck Schumer together have so much outsized power and are probably feeling this pressure more acutely than just about any politicians in the country right now, which I think bodes well for maybe some actual reform coming through. Yeah, I mean, the, the problem is Democrats' hand is so weak right now that they're not going to get much in terms of sensible long-term changes to the policy itself. So I think like the the necessary upgrades to security are going to come, and I and I generally support those. Like I, I think like whatever we can do to know who's coming in out of our country is is sensible to me. At the same time, I think there should be like transparent pathways to citizenship that don't involve the abuse of our asylum system. And there should be some kind of prioritization for the jobs that we need as a society. And we also should have real due process. Like our asylum system is so overrun right now that credible asylum seekers are being thrown in with people who are just using the system to get in the country and nobody's being served well by that. So it, it is a true mess. Uh, and my heart goes out to people. Honestly, I saw this, this, this photo of a, a young girl and her mom being sent back on a bus after they were expelled from one of these facilities that had the code violation in quotes. And uh, it's just like, this is New York. I mean, th this should tell us something. This is the, the city with the Statue of Liberty, you know, with the Emma Lazarus poem about our, our tired or weak, you know, our, the huddled masses, right, that had taken on, you know, unprecedented waves of immigrants in the 19, you know, in, in the early 20th century. And we need we need to find a way to take in people in a humane, organized way that doesn't cause chaos. Like that's what America has traditionally been about. We've generally been pretty permissive, but we, we need to be organized. You know, even Ellis Island for all of its chaos and, and, and humanity is better than what's going on right now. Yeah. I mean, my solution to this, the, the drum that I constantly beat is that the best thing we could put our money into is more judges and lawyers to process all these asylum claims and all the migrants who are coming across the border. Because I think one thing we've seen historically is, you know, for, for every new border security trick or expansion or whatever, there's a new route created for migrants to get into the country, you know, unauthorized, illegally, whatever you want to call it. So, you know, the fu fundamentally, our problem is that there are millions of people who aren't having their asylum claims processed because they get here and they get to a system that says, you know, here's a court date five years down the road. You know, we're going to keep an eye on you. Good luck, basically. And that's a huge problem that I think is unacceptable. And it's kind of a misnomer that a lot of those people don't show up for their court dates. Actually, the majority of them do because, you know, getting legal work status or becoming in you know, a citizen or whatever they want is typically a really good advantageous thing for them. But until we can process the people who are actually showing up here, the rest of it is kind of just, you know, we, we can't even get to enforcing the laws that we have. So my hope is that any kind of immigration reform that we see includes a massive expansion of, you know, the people and the systems, the judges, the lawyers, the processing centers that we need to be able to sort people and say, you know, you're in and here's your status and you're not, and we have to deport you. And, and that, you know, that's the harsh reality of following the law, but like, we're not even at a place where we can enforce the laws we have, which is really difficult. Yeah. Well, on that sunny note, uh, 
Thanks, Isaac, for being with us. Uh, welcome back. Uh, and thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, thank you so much for those reviews that you've been putting up. They really mean a lot to us. You know, Go on there if you haven't yet. Leave us a five-star review. We don't bother you with charging you anything or even making you listen into advertising at the moment. So uh, one thing you do is just spread the word about us. You know, Leave a great review. Tell your friends. You could leave us a voicemail at 321-200-0570, 321-200-0570, and we will be back on Thursday. Thank you, everybody. Thank you.